But I think that since at a very young age, I got used to this idea of basically only my imagination being the limitation to what I could make happen on a computer, for example. Like the, what a computer can do is effectively limitless. Like no one except for, you know, massive AI and, and like quantum use cases are really pushing the limit of what the hardware can do. Otherwise, there are still a billion different software applications yet to be built on top of hardware that's already sitting on front of you. And it's only up to your, your mind and your skills and your creativity in order to make more out of that mold or out of that sort of, um, you know, base raw material that isn't there yet. So the world's very much felt sort of malleable to me very early on um, and uh, kind of trusting in my own ability to figure it out uh, has carried me very far. And um, I think that's also something that probably a lot of entrepreneurs do have in common, this sort of attitude of um, if other people have done it before me, why couldn't I do it? And that makes it automatically easier to try something that might seem scary to people who maybe don't um, look at the world as, as that changeable. Welcome to Founder Chats by Bear Metrics, where we chat with founders and hear how they started and grew their businesses. This week, Brian talked with Dawaman, founder and CEO of Meltano, an open source data integration and transformation platform. Dawa has been a software entrepreneur since he was 18 when he founded Stingo, a reservation management platform for bed and breakfasts. While in college, he joined GitLab as employee number 10 and quickly moved up the ranks to engineering manager. In 2019, he joined an internal team working on what would become Meltano. Enjoy. Awesome. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm doing great. How are you? Doing fantastic. Uh, you know, we record these at different times and they're released, obviously. Um, and so sometimes at the beginning of podcasts, I talk about the weather, which is like totally irrele irrelevant too. But um, I don't know. It, it's nice and warm. I'm in um, I'm in the U.S. I'm in the in South Texas. So um, it's been it's been relatively cold here and we're, we're having some warm weather lately. So I feel like that really um, that brings my mood <laughs> around when the, the weather gets a little <laughs> bit warmer. Oh yeah, I'm I'm based in Mexico City, um, so I'm not that far from South Texas. And even though Mexico City doesn't really have winters, we're definitely coming out of a couple of colder weeks. So I'm also happy to, uh, yeah, to not have to wear hoodies again and all of that stuff. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm in San Antonio, so I'm just uh, you know not not too far to the to the northeast. So we're we're probably we experienced a, a similar set of uh, cold that came through not too long ago. Um, well, cool. Well, yeah, again, thanks so much for, for joining us. So I'd love to just kind of dive into your, your story and I'll learn a little bit more about you. Uh, if you don't mind starting, you know, where did you start your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, I think if um, I've been I've been thinking about that recently and, and what part of my journey you could really identify as the start of that. But really, uh, we have to go back all the way to when I was nine years old and I started to basically teach myself how to program um, through content that I was able to find online and, and open source software projects where you were able to actually read the code and, and learn from what professional programmers had written. Um, and I always had this, um, this, 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 drive to identify problems and inefficiencies around me that 
and then basically solve them uh, by writing code to build little applications for myself or my high school or my friends. Uh, and I realized really early on that with the effectively unlimited power of a computer, um, it became a really great creative outlet for me as well, where I was able to take these ideas I had in my head and um, use them to affect the world around me by building software that could run on people's computers, cell phones, etc. Um, so all the way through high school, from about 11 to 18, 17, 18 years old, um, I ended up doing freelance PHP web development, where I was working for all kinds of clients who probably didn't realize they were talking with like a 12, 13 year old. <laughs> right, Although right. in retrospect, just, you know, my emails can't have been as like, professionally written as I would write them today. So there might have been an aspect there of people knowingly um, effectively paying very little amounts of money for uh, underage labor. But on sure. my side, it was a great opportunity during high school to uh, kind of broaden my horizon and get to work with users and customers and um, get into this sort of professional problem solving mode. And I did that all through high school until in the final year of high school, I um, had, had taught myself how to build iPhone and Mac applications as well, besides the web applications I had been building before that. And I ended up being recruited by a um, iOS and Mac app development studio in the Netherlands, which is where I'm from, uh, to join as their, their lead developer. And we did that for about a year and a half together, um, at which point one of my bosses at that point had decided together with another business partner of his to start a new company. And they asked me to join as co-founder and CTO um, at the age of 18. So from 18 to 20, um, the three of us built this company where that was building a sort of platform for bed and breakfast owners to manage their um, online presence, their guest communications and their reservations. So don't think of the Airbnb where every listing is just some details and people search for them and find the, the, the thing that ranks the highest. But these old school bed and breakfast where the only the owner really care about their relationship with their, their guests and about their house style and their entire reputation and online presence is something that they treat as very personal. Uh, that's what we were building. So throughout the uh, those years, I had pretty much single-handedly built this this massive Ruby on Rails web application. Um, for those who know what that means. Um, and what ended up happening is that I went to a number of conferences around Europe uh, to you know, get to meet other programmers and, and talk about what we were doing. And I ended up running into Sid Sibrandi, um, who is now the CEO and founder of GitLab, which uh, I can tell a little bit more about in a second. And it turned out that he was also from the Netherlands, which is why we got to talking. And his parents owned a bed and breakfast in the north of the country. Um, so his parents ended up using the platform that I had single-handedly built um, and we, I was around 20 when we met. And a year later, uh, we kept running into each other at different conferences. And he asked me if I wanted to come join GitLab, this little, at the time, nine-person startup that he um, had been building around this open source software project called GitLab, which had been founded in 2011. Um, and they were starting to build out the team. They were on the verge of raising funding. And they asked me to join. And at that time, the people that I had co-founded, the, uh, the 
previous company with, which was called Stingo, uh, kind of a, a combination of stay and go uh, with the word in in there, uh, which we thought was great. Um, but the, the thing was that I was like 20, so my risk tolerance was super high, but my partners were in their mid 30s and 50s who were at quite different places in their life and had different ideas about what they wanted from the company. So I decided, or we together decided to wind down this uh, startup we had co-founded um, and to basically go our separate ways. And I ended up picking um, this, this GitLab offer and joining in uh, early 2015, just as GitLab was going through the Y Combinator Accelerator program in Mountain View. Um, and to connect this back to sort of the entrepreneurial journey, I joined GitLab as an engineer originally, and GitLab started growing like crazy. So really quickly, I became engineering manager, uh, managing uh, at the time the 14-person engineering team at GitLab. And throughout my time at GitLab, I uh, sort of stayed on the engineering management side until the company had grown to 1,400 people from 10 when I joined originally. And I was starting to feel that itch again of working at a small company, small team, um, and, and seeing really the impact of the work you're doing every single day and being able to sort of figure it out together uh, with a small team instead of um, kind of following the lines that have been drawn from upstairs, so to speak. So I was given this opportunity to um, move over to an internal project at GitLab called Meltano, which is the company that uh, I am now CEO and founder of, um, which had been an internal project at GitLab that was founded in 2018, and I ended up joining in 2019 as engineering lead. And then in 2020, um, based on the lack of sort of traction and, and metric success that the project had been finding, uh, the team was reduced from six people down to one. And I was essentially left by myself to see if I could turn this project that had been around for about two years at the time, um, if I could turn it around. Uh, and I became the general manager. And about a year later, after having basically done every aspect of this internal project myself, everything from um, support for our users to product management and uh, documentation writing and the actual programming and going on podcasts and every everything else you can imagine, um, we did actually manage to find significant success and traction with, uh, with users who really loved what we were doing. And in early 2021, so about a year ago, the decision was made to spin this Meltano project out of GitLab, uh, which meant that I would turn from general manager into the uh, CEO and founder of the new startup. Um, and that's where we were a year ago, and that's what I've been doing for the last year, and uh, with growing the team around me from uh, from no one to now 13 people. Um, so it's been a kind of a non-traditional journey where I kind of fell into my entrepreneurial founder role but if you go back to the early days where I was, you know, at nine years old learning to program and building stuff for my high school, um, you know, peers to use, there's definitely some traces that you can, uh, you know, trace all the way back uh, that led me to where I am today. Yeah, absolutely. It, how does it feel to kind of talk through that, that whole story? There's so much that's, that happened in a relatively <laughs> short period of time there. I know. I mean, you were saying earlier that um, from your own perspective, the story can feel kind of mundane because you lift it and you don't know any better. And that's definitely how I often feel. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
I, uh, looking back, uh, I managed to put myself into situations where people gave me opportunities and I was sort of able to rise to the occasion each time. And that has sort of led us to where we are today, even though I never set out to get here. Um, it's definitely a string of things that compared to where, for example, my peers were at the time, I was sort of ahead of the curve when it came to this. I just want to identify problems and solve them and I'll uh, take whatever challenge is thrown my way um, in order to, uh, to keep doing that. Um, it's been it's been quite a journey and I could not ever have done it without open source software which is so core to what we're doing at Meltano um, I, I could not have fulfilled this entire journey without remote work as well which led me to live in Mexico City right now um, and those are both values that, that we hold extremely dear at Meltano as well and uh, my, my history having seen GitLab colleagues in, in 68 different countries and having worked with them and been exposed to all these different places where people also need really great software tools to do their job better uh, than what might be available for higher prices in, in regions like the US and Europe has also been part of what motivated me to build open source software that truly helps everyone. Um, a nine-year-old kid wherever they might live or uh, a company that happens to be located in an area where the uh, prices that US companies charge are just prohibitive and that, um, that kind of all comes together in, in Meltano building open source data tooling that allows data teams of any uh, shape and size and color to work more effectively and collaboratively on their data projects. Um, and um, ultimately the motivation for that, that can definitely be traced back to those early days where at nine years old, I could just find stuff online that would allow me to do real world impacts. Uh, and, and open source software is very much a requirement for that in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, that's such a cool, that's such a cool path to go on. What was it like? Or what was the transition like when you went from kind of teaching yourself to um, having people reach out or, or even what was that process? How did you wind up when you were in high school having companies reach out to you for effectively freelance work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So um, when I was nine, I started learning to program. And by the time I was 11, a friend of mine in high school had figured out that there was this website in the Netherlands called Site Deals, which was essentially a job board for freelance web development. So people would post their projects on there and then you could respond with a quote and you know get in touch with them over email. Uh, a little bit similar to Upwork and, and similar uh, platforms you have today. Um, and since it was all text-based and there was no expectation at the time of ever meeting each other or even getting onto a video call, um, you know, remember that that we're talking like 16 years ago, and and Zoom was not nearly as uh, as much of a given as it is today. Tools like that, at least, um, it was all text-based. No one knew, and they were just trying to get their work done for cheap. And at uh, 11 years old, I was definitely able to provide. Um, and then by the time I was 16 or in 17 or so, I had taught myself how to build iPhone and Mac apps. Uh, I had been, you know, I had gotten an iPhone. I loved the ability to be able to um, build little nifty productivity tools that I could actually use every day. So I, I ended up building an application for my high school that would process the uh, schedule changes and updates that were published on the school website every day um, and would allow you to access them from your phone so that in between classes you could quickly check whether the, you know, the, the place you had to go would have changed or whether your class got cancelled. And this application ended up being used by uh, 
uh, pretty much everyone in the school that had an iPhone or an iPod Touch at that point, including like half the, the teaching staff. Um, and that was something that I ended up also writing about on Twitter. Um, and as I was at the time also trying to figure out a way to contribute to other projects and projects that I liked, I started reaching out to some of these um, iPhone apps or iPad apps that had been new and that were only available in English or in other languages. Uh, and myself being from the Netherlands where the native language is Dutch, I spoke English fluently, but I still thought there was value in um, helping these tools reach a larger audience. So I offered them basically free translation services to Dutch um, for their apps that I liked and wanted to help grow. And it turned out that one of these people that I reached out to um, was actually Dutch himself. He just hadn't taken the time yet to translate his application into, into Dutch. And we ended up chatting and he saw my Twitter profile. Uh, and that's when he asked me like, hey, you know, we're building this company for iPhone and Mac apps. Uh, we're pretty impressed by what we've seen from you. Um, would you like to interview for this, this developer role? And that's how I ended up moving from mostly freelance and, and programming for myself and my friends into uh, building productivity apps at this uh, company. Uh, and pretty quickly I became the engineering lead uh, and the, the guy who had been doing the engineering beforehand uh, moved the focus more on design. So then I also got the experience of working in a team which I hadn't had until that point. Um, and since this was like a small company, I got sort of used to the scrappy nature of, of startups and um, it, it was never something that felt particularly foreign to me compared to just getting a job somewhere since I had always been doing either stuff myself or in a small team. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy to think that, I mean, that opportunity came really, I mean, that's kind of very out of left field of, you know, you I were know. just making an offer of saying like, hey, I'd love to, you know, do this work for you for free. And, you know, who, who would have imagined their responses? Like, well, instead of you doing that work for me for free, why don't we hire you and pay you to do, uh, to, you know, developer work? I mean, that's such yeah. a cool, such a, yeah, such a cool situation, like a cool flip to go through. Yeah, it's, it's wild because I, of course, had no, no expectation of getting a job. Like, I mean, I, I was 17. I wasn't even thinking about jobs. I was just thinking about side projects while I was was, was in high school. Um, right. And then that day where I had this spreadsheet of all of these cool iPad apps that I was looking forward to installing once my iPad would finally arrive, um, and I decided to ping some of them and, and offer them translation services and, and sort of, you know, now here we are. And and similarly, when I was at that conference in, in Athens, actually, where I ended up running into Sid, uh, the CEO of GitLab, um, what had happened is that I was there by myself because I, in the team, I didn't have a lot of other engineers, but I still felt that, that itch to sort of uh, meet more of the community. Um, and I walked up to someone over lunch and we just started chatting. And then he pointed into the corner of the room and said like, oh, hey, my boss is also Dutch. Maybe you should go chat with him. And then, you know, it turned out that his parents had a bed and breakfast and they became customers and, and the rest is history. But again, if I hadn't gone to that conference or if I hadn't walked up to this random person over lunch or if I hadn't introduced myself to the CEO or if I hadn't very coincidentally built a product that his parents would actually reuse, which ended up serving essentially as my resume because after that I never had to formally apply or go through much of a hiring process uh, because the fact that I had built this product that his parents were using was sort of you know evidence um, enough that I sort of knew what I was doing. Um, yeah, it is wild looking back at it. Yeah, I'm wondering if if you even remember, but I'm curious like what was the thought process like especially like actually really in any of these turns where you kind of went from the freelance world and you got offered a, you know a, a 
developer position or you're working on the, uh, you know, the, the B2B um, project and you got offered this other, you know, kind of like staff developer role. Um, I'm just curious, like, do you remember what your thought process was when you, uh, when you got that, got that offer? Were, was there any hesitance or was it more a situation where you were like, well, you know, sure, why not? Or, you know, uh, you know what, what else am I going to be doing? <laughs> yeah, I, um, it was definitely more of the latter. I I have always had this feeling that like when when a challenge uh, is is thrown my way, I would probably never say no to it uh, because I want to also myself see if I can actually do it. And I know that I would always regret it if there was an opportunity to do something cool and I would um, not have taken it. But what definitely helped is that like. I, I was 17, I had nothing to lose. I didn't feel like it was a particularly dangerous, risky decision to start working for this three-person company or then a year later to found this new um, three-person startup. And then in 2021, or no, not in 2021, I meant to say when I was 21 and I ended up joining GitLab, um, it also just felt like a natural next step. And if it wouldn't work out, I could just go do anything else. I was still mm. completing my computer science bachelor's degree at uh, Utrecht University in the Netherlands at the time. So I was still thinking of like my real work life, maybe starting two years or so into the future. Um, and it was just um, something that made sense in the moment. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I remember a few times in my life where I feel like I've been on both sides of that of on one hand, just sort of thinking like, well, you know, this is the direction that I'm interested in. I'm going to pursue yeah. it. And if I ever want to kind of come back to, you know, kind of quote unquote, the real world, then I can do that. Um, and then I've had other times. I remember, I don't remember what age I was, but, you know, it was probably like my early 20s. And um, I, I had the thought of like, well, you know, it's kind of like, uh, obviously not this directly, but through a, a series of thought thinking like, ah, it's, you know, too late for me to start, you know, software development. You know, I'm, mm. I'm at the, you know, the ancient age of, you know, whatever it was, 22. <laughs> and it's like, you know, too, too yeah, late for me to kind of, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I had to eventually, you know, shake myself out of that. Um, but it's, it's interesting that, you know, it's almost like a, a choice that you can make of saying like, well, and you probably, there are some scenarios in which it's, uh, things are not going to work out, but it seems like that's like a really strong ability f that you have of being able to determine, you know, what is the, like, you know, what's like the risk to reward and, and being maybe even like a little bit more tolerant of risk and understanding where you can reapply your efforts. If, you know, you're like, all right, well, this doesn't work out. I kind of know I'm going to go in this. And in fact, almost at every single step, you're like, well, I'll just keep doing what I was doing before. If this developer job doesn't yeah. work out, well, then I'll just go back and, you know, be a freelancer again, you know, and kind of like, you know, it, it's, it doesn't seem like a necessarily an overcommitment on, on your side. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And even now that I am, you know, CEO and founder and, and running my own company, um, not at all that I am thinking of going back, but going back to working at a tech company as an engineering manager um, is still a really great fallback plan if this doesn't work out. Um, so, yeah, I, I never felt like I was taking a particular risk. And I'm trying to think of other parts of my life where this sort of applies, because there's an interesting story, too, where in 2016, when I had been at GitLab 
for about a year and my uh, my computer science bachelor's program had just finished and my girlfriend at the time had just broken up with me. So I was in the Netherlands. I didn't really have anything keeping me there. And like I mentioned earlier, um, GitLab is all remote, just like Meltano is today. And at the time, GitLab had a couple hundred people in at least you know, 30, 40 different countries. Um, from day one, it's been all remote with a, with a very global workforce. So when I was done with college, um, I decided, okay, I have all of these colleagues in all of these cool places and they show like pictures and videos of, of their lives. And it's all of these places that you don't really know much about if you grow up like in the Netherlands, a uh, pretty um, kind of comfortable life. And, and you have all of these perceptions of the rest of the world, which are usually kind of skewed in a negative direction. But I realized that I had this golden opportunity to go travel to all of these places where we had colleagues and have the locals show us around and show us, show me what those places are really like. Um, and since GitLab didn't really care where you work from as long as you get your work done, I was able to uh, take this, um, take, go on this six month journey together with another colleague that I ended up sort of volunteering telling to join me on this trip and we ended up meeting 49 colleagues in 20 different cities on f in 14 countries on five continents in the space of six months and wow. looking back th there was a pretty bold move to just say oh i'm gonna sublet my apartment for six months and i'm just gonna travel around and i'll be fine but even then i felt like what's the worst that can happen i'll just have to fly back to the netherlands and go home and then the craziest thing is that halfway through this trip we were in Mexico City because we had a colleague uh, here living at the time that we were visiting. And through a guy that I had met six months prior to that in San Francisco, he ended up introducing me to his sister who lived in Mexico City. Um, and we ended up having dinner and, and really, really hitting it off to the point where um, we decided, okay, let's see if we can make this work as a relationship. So immediately after this six-month trip, I moved to Mexico City for six months, uh, the, the first half of 2017. Um, again, because with GitLab, the risk felt pretty manageable. And, and if the relationship wouldn't work out, I could just go home. But it also seemed like too good of an opportunity to not give a real shot. Uh, and uh, the consequence of that is that I lived in Mexico City for six months. Um, she afterwards came with me to the Netherlands to do a master's program for two and a half years. And then two years ago, uh, we got married and we moved to Mexico City, which is why I ended up living here again now. Um, and that's too, like meeting this girl, Mexico City and basically after a week and a half together deciding let's move in for six months and see if we can really make this work in the moment didn't even feel like that bold a move um, but I, I guess there's a pattern here of me I wouldn't say necessarily underestimating risk because the risk in all of these cases was pretty limited um, but kind of following my gut instinct and going for something that I think would be a good move uh, has paid off really well so far and, uh, and, and it's continuing to do so in this new um, startup journey that I'm on. Yeah, you're like the you're the master of trial runs. Like, like yeah, let's just give it let's give it a shot. And like figuring out how to how to turn any sort of idea or any sort of different you know inclination that you have into, um, you know, it's like all right, well, what would it be like? You know, it's not like like you said, it's like well, I'm you know I'm gonna sublet my apartment. I'm not going to like you know get rid of it completely. Right. But you know, like how can I do this for a you know fixed period of time and make sure that. You know, at the end of it, if it doesn't work out or if I hate it or whatever the case is, I have a place to, to go back to. Um, yeah. You know, it wasn't, you, didn't, you didn't sell like all of your possessions and, you know, like, you, like, uh, you know uh, totally change everything. You're like, okay, cool. How can we, you know, how can we try this?
Yeah, that's a good point because from my own perspective, uh, even though I sort of felt like, oh, I'm just going, you know, all in on this thing, uh, there was always sort of a hedge, not necessarily consciously, but there was something to fall back on if it didn't work out. Um, but I think that since at a very young age, I got used to this idea of basically only my imagination being the limitation to what I could make happen on a mm. computer, for example. Like, yeah. What a computer can do is effectively limitless. Like no one except for, you know, massive AI and, and like quantum use cases are really pushing the limit of what the hardware can do. Otherwise, there are still a billion different software applications yet to be built on top of hardware that's already sitting in front of you. And it's only up to your your mind and your skills and your creativity in order to make more out of that mold or out of that sort of, um, you know, base raw material that isn't there yet. So the world's very much felt sort of malleable to me very early on um, and uh, kind of trusting in my own ability to figure it out uh, has carried me very far and um, I think that's also something that probably a lot of entrepreneurs do have in common this sort of attitude of um, if other people have done it before me uh, why couldn't I do it and that makes it automatically easier to try something that might seem scary to people who maybe don't um, look at the world as, as that changeable yeah, absolutely. And I'm kind of curious, like specifically with, you know, going over to GitLab, because I feel like that's another good example yeah. of that. I mean, anybody who knows GitLab now um, can say like, oh, yeah, that was a, a pretty good decision to, to do that. Um, but I'm curious, like, was it kind of a similar thing? there when you got the offer because you you had a you were in a position that seemed like you know was was pretty rewarding and um something that was sort of up your alley so you you had this offer um i'm, I'm curious if it's the same thing and also maybe additionally like what did you like what did you see again it's like very difficult now knowing how how <laughs> big and successful GitLab is but th that wasn't the case when you were you were getting involved so what did you see at the time that you were like oh well you know this might be you know this might be something else i want to take a take a trial run at yeah yeah so originally when i when i met sid and he told me about GitLab, um and and i think it was just like a five-person company at the time um it was pretty unambiguously an open source github clone. I don't think anyone would fault me for sort of describing it that way back then, mm -hmm. even though, of course, at the time we thought, we and we still think, that there's a lot more to it than that that makes it valuable. Um, and a lot of that is in the in the bit of open source. But I had been using GitHub, and GitHub was great, and of course, I, I understood open source, and, and I saw that there's extra value there. But at the time, I wasn't immediately sold. Um, and, it had to, and it had to come through me and Sid meeting a couple more times at different conferences around Europe, um, and my the company I had at the time, Stingo, the Bed and Breakfast Project, um, like I mentioned earlier, my partners were in, in such different places in their life that we were already sort of trying starting to figure out that the three of us were not exactly the right makeup because we weren't quite aligned with where we wanted to go and our risk tolerance. Um, so about six months or so after originally meeting Sid, I was in a position where I shot him an email saying like, hey, you know, you, you let me know a half a year ago that you'd be interested in uh, maybe bringing me onto the project project, um, that can we still have that conversation? And at the time, there were a number of different of course, startups in the Netherlands that, from my perspective, all looked about the same. They were all kind mm. of in that pre-seed, seed stage, maybe five to ten people. Um, all of them, of course, were saying that they were going to change the world. Um, the reason why GitLab attracted me, if I'm looking back, 
in part it was just because of Sid, who who leaves a, an impression on everyone he meets, um, where you're like, wow, this this guy could really pull it off. And the other thing is just that open source and building tools for developers was particularly attractive. Um, open source, like I mentioned earlier, uh, was close to my heart because I could never have taught myself to program at nine years old uh, had it not been for open source software and all of this sort of freely available content on the internet um, that that's can rival whatever you would be taught in university. Um, so that was cool, working on something, not just with the small team that's employed to do so, but also with the wider community of its users. And working on software for developers is really special in that it allows you to scratch your own itch. Um, as we used to tell people uh, when, we, when we were hiring at GitLab, their job was very much to make their own job easier. Um, as a developer, uh, every time you run into some friction with the product, fixing that is a priority because there are probably going to be hundreds of others that um you know, of the users that run into the same stuff. And since scratching my own itch had pretty much always been the motivation for programming and stuff I worked on, like I described earlier with this application in high school for checking like the schedule changes um, and, and various other things I'd built. Just to give another example, uh, at some point I was listening to radio um, in the Netherlands and I wanted to know the lyrics to the songs that were playing. So I built this little tool that was running on my computer that would listen to the radio stream along with me extract the metadata that um, has like the auth the artist and song information that is sometimes displayed on like your radio set in your car, for example, use that to do a Google search for that uh, artist song combination followed by the word lyrics, then pick the top top uh, results, parse their contents, get out the lyrics and print those on uh, in a window. So while I was listening to the radio, I had like live lyrics showing on a second monitor at all times, very much scratching my own itch. And this is something yeah. that I open sourced because I thought others might also benefit from me. And being able to work on open source software um, and of course actually get paid for it and, and build something for developers, by developers, uh, was really rewarding. And I did believe uh, at that time, and I it has definitely been proven out, with that the best tools are built in close collaboration with their users. And if your users happen to be technical enough that they could actually improve your tool, and which is the case for a lot of industries. Um, software development, where GitLab is 100%, but also very much the data space, which Meltano plays in today. If your users are capable of programming, then the best tool will always be built by the project that has the users collaborating with the, the sort of primary maintainers of the tool in order to build the ideal tool. Um, and, and GitLab has so many great power user features in there that were either provided by community members or even by full-time Ruby on Rails developers that were hired by some of GitLab's users that wanted to make GitLab better for their needs without having to wait for GitLab's own um, product management and, and roadmap process, um, meaning that these organizations have now sort of built GitLab in their own image and are locked in, not in sort of the negative vendor lock-in way where you're limited by the decisions of one party, but locked in because it's a tool that they had a hand in building and, and perfecting for their needs. And with Meltano, we're seeing the same and uh, for, for data teams and being able to... Um, build just really great tools uh, has always been what motivates me. And as I'm thinking more about this, um, because we're having the conversation, one thing we always used to tell ourselves at GitLab, because we had like NASA and SpaceX and uh, other sort of really 
really companies doing really impressive stuff in the world as users, um, since we were building a tool that made their teams more productive, we could claim a tiny bit of secondhand credit for you know SpaceX getting to wherever they were going you know a day earlier if we had made our team a couple percentage points more more effective. Right. So productivity tooling and, and tools in general um, made GitLab just seem perfect. And uh, I guess at the time there was no way to tell if it would really be the massive success that it has now turned out to be. Uh, GitLab went public in, in October uh, and of course the, the recent stock market uh, has, uh, you know, not necessarily crashed but but Kerfuffle has had a bit of a hit on that. But it has turned into a, an almost $10 billion company and no one could have predicted that back then. But both on the side of myself and everyone else involved at the time, uh, we identified that there was something special about tools built in collaboration with their users. Um, and that is the exact thesis that is at the bottom of Meltano right now, where we are building better data tools for data teams um, uh, in collaboration with these users. That's awesome. Yeah, and I'd love to kind of bring us up to, or at least transition into kind of current day. Like, I, I'm wondering what was going on inside of GitLab that sort of had you go through that similar process where, you know, the team said like, okay, well, there's, we have this problem or we have this need that kind of feels like we need to like spin out almost like a separate team or a separate product around solving. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the Meltano project was founded inside GitLab in 2018 um, because of a couple of things coming together, but very much at the root of it was this uh, realization that when the data team at GitLab started looking for tools to do their job, they were expecting to find tools that were pretty aligned with the software development best practices like um, DevOps, version control, continuous integration, uh, and all of these things that have really allowed software development to become more collaborative and effective than ever over the last five to ten years, in large part because of tools like GitLab and GitHub uh, bringing these qualities uh, and capabilities to the masses. So when the GitLab data team was looking for data tooling, which is a field very much adjacent and, and with lots of parallels with software development, they were expecting to find all of these same qualities that would make it super easy for teams to collaborate and, and propose changes and discuss them without accidentally breaking things in the live environment where your you know CFO might be about to present a dashboard um, to the board. So mm, since yeah. GitLab found that the data tooling space was actually not quite what they expected and looked a lot more like the 10 years ago um, world of software development where you would make live changes to your website and then go check if you didn't break something accidentally um, and you would see it exactly at the same time that your users would, that was still the reality in, in the data space. Mm -hmm. So uh, GitLab realized there's an opportunity here to um, revolutionize data workflows by building an open source platform that embraces these software development uh, best practices and allows data teams to do everything from data integration, which means pulling data from various sources into a centralized place so that it can then be further processed and, and um, analysis can be applied on it. In a single end-to-end -end open source platform, um, built uh, along the lines of what developers would like to see. So in 2018, this project started within GitLab um, and it became clear over the course of 2018, 2019, just before I joined, that it was difficult to get users as well as contributors uh, to 
believe in this end-to-end thing that would replace everything they had set up to that point. Like, you need to, you cannot build something that's just a little bit better than what they currently have. It needs to be a lot better. And that meant that we had a lot of work cut out for ourselves before the project would even be interested enough for people to contribute to. Um, So over the course of 2019, um, when I joined the team as engineering lead, we came to the realization that we needed to, in order to get the traction and contribution numbers up, um, narrow our focus a little bit on something that doesn't require teams to swap out everything they currently have for this new, unproven, sort of half-baked thing, but something smaller that would be easier to put into their existing data stack. and at the same time, we were coming to the conclusion that within the data space, while previously people were used to using one platform that did it all, now teams were looking for one tool for every step of the data lifecycle that was really good at one particular thing, which is what we call the modern data stack today, where you have somewhere between three and six different tools all catered to one particular area of the data lifecycle. But we, coming from GitLab, still realized that there was a lot of opportunity there for the software development best practices to be uh, brought in. So in um, in early 2020, the decision was made from GitLab's side that the Meltano project um, just didn't warrant a continuing six-person full-time team on it and uh, with you know with the metrics as they were at the time and the decision was made for myself to see if I could turn it around essentially over 2020 so what I ended up doing is by talking to a lot of the users that had been able to find us and that had been able to get enthusiastic about the, the, the you know the general mission um, and asking them the, what value they were currently getting out of Meltano we learned that the most promising thing we had built up to that point was a layer around some existing open source technologies for extraction and loading, for transformation and for orchestration, specifically Singer, DBT and Airflow. And I know I'm getting a little bit in the weeds right now, but I'll get out of it in a sec, I promise. Uh, We realized that the most promising thing we had built was this layer that brings together these open source technologies and allows them to become better than some of their parts and and something you really want to use and something that feels like a cohesive unit instead of just three different uh, tools kind of slapped together, Um, which meant that compared to the original end-to-end vision where we would build a great solution that did everything, we were now looking at a, um, a framework we would build that would allow existing tools to come together, but still would let teams treat their entire data platform as a cohesive um, software project that they could take through the software development lifecycle like anything else. And the most promising thing we had built was exactly this around those three technologies I just mentioned. So by narrowly focusing on those and describing ourselves as open source uh, ELT, Extract Load Transform, for the DevOps or Data Ops era, we were able to make it a lot easier to understand and easier to adopt piecemeal for our users. So over the course of 2020, usage started picking up, uh, not even because of significant product changes, but because of changes in the positioning and the messaging and how we described us and the types of users we were aiming uh, aiming at. Um, and by the end of the year, Meltano had become actually a really popular um, extract load transform tool that was becoming particularly uh, popular with these data teams that had been exposed to software development best practices through their software development counterparts in the organization, and that really loved being able to manage their data files 
pipelines like any other piece of software, um, which meant that in early 2021, we were inside GitLab discussing how we could set up GitLab for uh, Meltano for success. Um, the first thing that I got permission to do was hire some more people onto the team. Uh, so we immediately hired one of the star contributors out of the open source com uh, community, who is now our head of engineering, Aaron Steers, um, as well as GitLab's own data lead, I think at the time, Taylor Murphy, who had been involved with the Meltano product since the early days. So suddenly uh, we were a three person team again. But as we started talking about what Meltano would need to really spread its wings and, and, and write its own journey, we realized that since GitLab was a, at that time, almost 2000 people organization, very much with everyone set up to focus on one product, one industry, one um, you know audience, etc., with quite literally 1997 people working on one thing and three working on another, the organization wasn't quite set up to support Meltano the way we needed to be if we wanted to be able to move fast and make competitive offers to people that know that they were joining a startup. Um, and generally, the question was, is GitLab going to transform in an organization that can have two different business lines or uh, is it better to spin out Meltano? So we started looking for external funding um, to fund the next step in the journey and we ended up uh, indeed spinning out Meltano. Um, there was one other thought I wanted to add there, but it's, it's escaping me now. But that's sort of how we ended up spinning out. Um, oh yeah, what I wanted to clarify is that from the very beginning in 2018, Meltano wasn't just built for GitLab's data team that wanted better tooling. The realization from GitLab's perspective was also that there would be another mm. big business opportunity here if Meltano would indeed be as impactful for the data space as GitLab has been for software development and DevOps. So GitLab always thought of this as either a second um, line of business or something to be spun out at some point uh, with, you know, after GitLab having done the initial incubation. Um, and that's exactly how it worked out. So in, in April, uh, May of last year, um, the three of us spun out. Um, we raised $4.2 million in funding from GV, uh, formerly known as Google Ventures, as well as a number of angel investors. Um, and since then, we've been growing the team. And over the last year, we have sort of earned the opportunity to broaden our vision again away from only bringing DevOps best practices to extract, load, and transform to bringing these best practices to the entire data lifecycle and all of the tools that currently make up the data stack. Um, so in October, November, we sort of had a soft pivot where we stopped articulating ourselves as open source ELT and started thinking of ourselves and describing ourselves as the open source data ops operating system. This foundation layer that allows teams to put together their ideal data platform by bringing together all their favorite components in one place with Meltano taking care of the um, kind of single pane of glass, consistent, cohesive user experience, uh, automatic configuration of all the components, thereby allowing people to start treating their data platform again like one tool that happens to be made up out of multiple components instead of the data platform just being um, a bunch of components all living in their own place with their own quirks and idiosyncrasies. Um, and we have proven that the value of a layer that pulls these components together by focusing focusing on ELT, and now we are um, doing so for the rest of the steps in the data lifecycle, which is something we will be building out uh, in the coming months. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense to me, and I, I've certainly been in the situation of 
Um, I, I think the framing, even if you maybe are um, moving past it a bit, I think that kind of initial seed of like, you have all these software development best practices and it does feel like now that I'm, as I'm thinking about it and as you're telling the story, I'm like, yeah, you just like, there's like no version control and you just like, I get the, the example that you gave of like, you know, the numbers change or something gets updated right before a board meeting. And then, you know, it's just like frantic, you know, of, you know, it's like, well, wait, we need to, and you even need to provide a level of consistency. So even if we, you know, even if you put it back, if the data was sampled differently or whatever the case is, then everything gets messed up. And, yeah. you know, that, that's a that's a board meeting down the drain because it's like, well, I prepared to speak about, you know, these numbers. And now instead I have these other numbers and, you know, it's hard to pull them all together. So um, it makes perfect sense of even around what you were saying, if you have all these different tools and it's like if even if you could just get all the tools to play nicely with each other and didn't have to have kind of the human element of gluing these things together or have that person in your company it's like oh like you know we have joe and only joe knows how all of the tools (laughs) work together and you know hopefully joe doesn't get hit by a bus because if we do we have we have no idea how the data gets from our database into this visualization tool just like yeah it's totally totally lost knowledge to the organization and and even if Joe did a really good job of documenting everything, what you see in most teams is that um, if, if the data stack is composed of like three, four, five different tools, everyone on the team is probably only really comfortable and, and comfortable making changes in one or two of those because everyone realizes right. that when you hit the wrong button accidentally, you can completely mess up your, you know, your CFO's board meeting dashboard. Um, mm-hmm. What that means is that there's a lot of siloing within these data teams and people throwing tasks over the wall and completely depending on other people to make the change, which of course hinders experimentation and rapid iteration massively because someone new on the team is not going to be able to make a change to their data platform that requires multiple tools because this needs to be coordinated between different people and a lot of easy changes like oh it would be great if this dashboard also showed this and this um, just don't end up done because the amount of work required and the chance of accidentally missing mixing something up are perceived to be so large that um, that that people are hold back from doing that and one of the amazing things about DevOps is this concept of isolated environments where production is everything that's currently live that's affecting real users that's the thing that your CFO would use if they're product presenting something to the board then staging is this environment where all of the stuff that has gone through some level of review by the team uh, is sort of running to catch any last minute issues but while you're working as a developer you're doing so on your local machine where you have running an entire um, realistic or more or less realistic copy of the entire application or data platform in this case all the way from the data pipelines that pull data from the sources to the code that transforms that data and the dashboards that, um, that that show the graphs, et cetera. And if you can run this locally and know that whatever change you make, you're never going to accidentally affect a real life user, makes it so much easier to experiment and explore and get to know these other tools um, and then just make some changes and send them to your team for review. And even if you are not the expert of one of those tools where you made a change, you can learn from the feedback you get from your peers without every, anyone ever having felt like, oh, I don't even dare to touch it because I might 
might accidentally break things. So right. as we want to get these data teams to collaborate more effectively and to feel more free to experiment and make end-to-end -end changes, it's essential that they are able to make these changes in an isolated development environment. And the data stack as it stands today is just not prepared for that at all. And with Meltano, since what we are providing is this foundation on top of which you can essentially build your own ideal data platform by bringing in these various open source components. From Meltano's perspective, all of these components are part of one bigger whole and the entire data platform with all of these components included can be run locally, can be run in staging, can be run in production and can be taken through code review uh, just like any other software project um, on an existing platform like GitLab or GitHub. So we are essentially embracing the modern data stack as it exists today and, and the wealth of different uh, components, especially the open source ones that, that are available to users today. And we are making it better than the sum of its parts by providing this operating system layer that allows it all to work together smoothly um, and that allow people to see their data platform as one thing again, instead of this kind of you know separated seven different things, everyone in the team only knows one thing, uh, which is sort of what the modern data stack has evolved into. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time coming on here and sharing your story. It's been really cool to hear, you know, the arc all the way through and, you know, the all those different transition points I think are just so so interesting to reflect on. And I agree with what you said of like it's like it seems like it seems like these are unrelated events, but then when you kind of step back and look at the arc, it's like, oh, well, this actually very, it's a very similar theme and a very similar through line. So it's just really, um, really cool to hear. Um, you know, here at the end of the you know episode, I want to just kind of give you a a minute to you know pitch directly if anybody's listening and they're they're kind of nodding along in agreement of you know they have the problems or they felt the pain of you know wrangling all these data sources or accidentally destroying a, um, a dashboard moments before a presentation or you know probably more likely the opposite. People say like, well, we just don't touch it and we don't we don't try to improve it because we're afraid of it. You know, yeah. what's the, you know, what's your, what's your pitch for them? What should, what should they do? Should they reach out and, you know, uh, you know, book a, book a demo or, or how, what's your, what's your, what's your pitch to those, those folks? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if, if everything I've described just now of, of bringing these software development best practices into the world of the modern data stack and, and to data life cycles and data teams more generally, um, if that resonates, um, like I said earlier, we are building this in the open source. We are doing this with our community of users because ultimately the best tool for you is going to be the tool that you had a significant uh, impact on, on designing and realizing. So if you'd like to use Meltano, um, give it a try. Meltano.com is the place to go. And from there, you can also find our repository on GitLab. You can check out all the code. Um, and our community on Slack, Meltano.com slash Slack should get you there, has more than 2,100 people right now who have joined us on this mission and are helping us every day um, to figure out what the next step is to build just the best possible data tooling. Of course, we have a team as well that gets to work on this stuff full time. Um, and we are currently hiring engineering people, marketing people, a 
data ops evangelist um, and engineers both on the data engineering and the software engineering side. So if you are motivated by sort of bridging these worlds of software development and data, um, if you've been running into you know issues productionizing or improving your data stack, um, come check either out our job board at meltano.com slash jobs, our open source uh, community at meltano.com slash slack as well as gitlab.com slash meltano uh, or just the product website at meltano.com to learn more. Awesome. Thanks so much. And we'll, we'll have links to everything in the description. Um, but yeah, thanks again for, for joining. Um, this is really, really great. And I hope everybody, uh, I don't want to hear any more, um, you know, data pipeline woes from, you know, the people that I'm talking to <laughs> over the next couple of weeks and months here. It sounds like a really great um, solution. And it sounds like, um, you know, especially from that open source perspective, if it's not if it's not exactly what you want, if it's, you know, 95% of the way there, well, you have the ability and the freedom to finish that that remaining 5%. So I think exactly. it's a really, really smart, elegant solution. Um, and yeah, thanks again so much for, for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. It was a pleasure to be here. That was our conversation with Dao Aman, founder and CEO of Meltano. If you're looking for an easier way to manage and optimize all the data tools in your stack, you know where to go, meltano.com. That's M-E-L-T-A-N-O.com. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at bearmetrics.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. And if you're able to share with a friend or leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.